<laughs> You're laughing. Oh yeah. I think we're live. I don't know if this is um gonna get a little. There we go. So this is the theme song. <laughs> I'm your host, Mitch Hampton, and we are, this is a very special, auspicious occasion because we have a special guest, Eddie Abreu. Eddie Abreu, welcome. Thank you, Mitch, for having I'm, me on your show. It's a pleasure. It's really, it's really unique because we've been, we've been talking mainly online, right, I think, and only just kind of, I know a person who knows a person. I think uh, Stephanie introduced us, right? Yes, she did. And Stephanie says, you have to meet Eddie because you dress like him, et cetera. And we have a lot in common and we're yes. both autistic, yes. right? Stephanie's autistic. I'm autistic. You're autistic. Yes. And I thought, you know, you're so articulate and intelligent and compassionate when discussing we who are neurodivergent. Yes. I thought maybe you should come on the show. We're going to get to some other stuff too. We're just not going to, yeah. it's not just going to be neurodivergence. But I thought it would be good if you expressed some of the things you've been talking about um, in other forums and I, I whatever you're comfortable talking about. Oh, if, yeah, you, yeah, yeah. if you could tell me, you know, about your, uh, I don't know, psychology or your diagnosis or what it means or also your feelings about where do you think this movement's going to go and the, and the, uh, you know, and what, uh, what you're cause you're an activist of course. And, yes. and you're also a tutor and I'm, I thought it would be okay to, uh, would it be okay to talk about that? Cause I know oh, that sure, you, sure, sure. that's, a, that's a whole, that's something I've never done. And that's very interesting to me. And so, um, where do you want to begin? You want to uh, talk about? Well, one? I would like to begin how I was diagnosed. So okay. the main story that, my family told me many, many times before was that I was diagnosed on a spectrum when I was three years old. Oh, wow. And at that time, my mindset was shaped differently than most of them of my neurotypical peers, because generally um, I was very observant, but also very quiet. One of my earliest memories uh -huh. growing up uh, was when I was 16 months old. And I can remember distinctively and visually in my crib crying, looking really? up at the ceiling and also to my right where my parents slept. So really? I was very, I was very observant, not in the ways that how human beings interact with each other, but they reflect in me the instinctiveness between the relationship or shall I say the interrelationship between human beings at bay, especially if you're nurturing the prospects sure. of the world around you and the stimuli that surrounds the environment. And as I got older, um, may, may, it, I, may I interject, just hold that thought. I think it's remarkable how early you remember, because you're yes. talking about months old. Now, 
I know it's controversial, controversial in psychology. You know, there's also this thing of like, you know, people can't remember their birth. I remember my birth and I remember the early months. Um, this is something that's really, so So does this connect to what you were talking about? Because it's very early, you're saying, I'm, yes. I'm such and such an age. Is this something that's uh has to do with the spectrum or is it different or? or well, not, not, well, not exactly, because if you look, if you research a lot of psychological papers that were published between five to 10 years ago, yeah. they will state that the earliest memories for an autistic individual date between uh, 10 to 12 months, even right. before the aspects of the memorization skills that are sure. put sure. in place by a neurotypical, let's sure. say between um, 24 to one year old because yeah. naturally for an autistic and there are people like me who are i mean who have the same thing mm -hmm. in their own perspective births and growing up with that same mindset they mm -hmm. instill within them and within their own consciousness the ability yeah. to reflect on the world around them and the stimuli that surrounds it so if many people read these reports, then they'll have a better understanding of how and when the outgrowth and the formalization of how autistics grow, breathe, thrive, and how they embody the distinctiveness between each and every one of us and how they in turn reflect on yeah. the specialty that reflects on the human experience. Well, that's quite, I, I, want, I want to go backtrack because you were talking about the early months in your diagnosis and I unfairly interrupted just because I wanted to. That was really asking if you had any insight into that, because as you know, I'm sure you're aware that there are these debates on what you can remember, what you can't remember, but yes. you'll agree with me that spiritually, um, we can remember very, you know, these are just um, fallacies, you know, that, that get reported that you can't do this, you can't do that. And you know, I'm sure you've known people that remember birth, right? Or maybe yes. yourself. Yeah. So this is not, I just wanted to, Clear that up. Sorry, I didn't mean to get, get all sidetracked. That's all right. I, I was also playing, I was going to add though that the autistic brain formulates much differently than the neurotypical because, yeah, also according to psychology and even in neurology, mm -hmm. there have been published reports of development of autistic brains mm -hmm. and especially even neurotypical brains, yeah, uh, prior before their birth because their brains grow faster and. The left cervix of the brain huh. functions more in a way where the stimuli, the environmental aspects of it, right. and the intuition factors that go behind the reasoning processes that are inclined within each and every individual who, who, right. who is either both autistic and or neurodivergent, right. or same thing altogether then it embodies the exposure of that stimuli. And yeah. to put it into that perspective, it yeah. aligns with the experiences which are being shown based on a front and center lens. So right. we are the observers mm -hmm. of acknowledging what yeah. goes on beforehand, especially even before we open our mouth. Our mouth. Yes. That's true. Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting. Um, I want to hear more about the doctors or psychologists your family encountered. Of course, I'm sure you'll you'll share that with us. Yes. I'm sharing that. But but uh, this made me think of this thing about observation. I uh, um, there was a ex CIA operative. Yes. That I heard interviewed, and he said he was talking about 
psychology. And one of the things he says that the mistake most people make is that they stay in perception, but don't go to perspective. Well, that is true. Well, well because perspective, now he's defining these words in a special way and he's trained by CIA, which is yes. not good. I'm no fan yeah. of that, but let's, yeah. let's just stick to that. So, so, but one of the things he does know about is that people stick with just their own personal feeling and their ego, which is perception. Perspective is when you have a more empirical, you kind of see what's going on and you come and you compile the facts first and then you reach con your conclusion later. Is that what you were talking about? You kind of, it's kind of like, yeah. Well, it's kind of broad because even if you add all the things up together and since we have a saying within the autism community that our brains can interact and interject information That's from right. sponges. Like we sponges, have to organize yeah. in a way that places the information from top to bottom. So since we are very descriptive people and since mm -hmm. we are very articulate, then it is the ability of the individual to recognize and focus sure, on the sure. traits sure. that really possess the individual's yeah. interest. So the interest right. at bay is also aligned with the mentality of the individual's true perceptions of reality based on their psychological and, and psycho psychoanalytical features of their personality. So when you realize this, then all things are in order. And you realize then that everything that is shaped in order recognizes the truest, most, um, in, the truest and most important aspects of any topic of conversation or any observation by other people based on right. their particular methods right. and how they use their methods to either deceive or even to bring joy, joy to many others. Sure. Well, it's all what you do do with what you got. You know, you don't want to. Yes. Don't want to. Um, yeah, I mean, but I, I think yeah. So, so did you? Were you? Was it a psychologist that your parents knew, or did they? Did they? Or was it something that? You know, because I'm I'm 54, yes. I'm older than you, and I got diagnosed at like age 50. You yes. getting diagnosed like basically <laughs> the came at, at what age three? So yeah. yeah, so so I don't know. What do you make of that? That's funny, right? Like it's kind of a different different. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's not it's not too surprising now. A lot of people are getting diagnosed in their 40s, 50s, yeah. even into their 60s because yeah. now the now the campaign to bring awareness and mm -hmm. acceptance to autistic peoples is growing even stronger than ever thanks to the right. autism rights movement because right. Right. over the past few decades we have made strides in recognizing who we are and what we are because right. many of this information that we're talking about wasn't available wasn't between available. 35 and 45 years ago because that was yeah. kept back in the open but the psychologists yeah. knew at that time, and I'm talking about going back as far as even after the 1940s, even wow. after Hans Osberger, Hans who, Osberger. Uh, who we all hate, who was... Do we all hate him? Is there, is there a consensus about because it was Nazism or because of his... Well, Osberger, well, the reason Asperger syndrome is no longer part of the, part of the yeah. psychological curriculum was that it was... Well, many people found out that Osberg, Hans Osberger was a notorious Nazi. Absolutely. And he was responsible for the euthanization, euthanization. of 1,100 um, 
children, especially kidnapped mm -hmm. children from That's Eastern right. European countries. Yeah. And there has been a rumor that he collaborated also with Dr. Josef Bengele. Mm -hmm. Oh. Uh, yeah. And they teamed up to do experiments on these children and yeah. published reports that were basically went back and forth between um, many of the established HQ quarters in the occupied countries and even in psychological circles within the Nazi party to determine the inferiority security complex between children who claim to be um, feeble-minded, which was a term at that time. Yeah. And because of that, they separated children into two distinctive factors. And in one of Mr. Osberger's reports, he noted that for a touch of a touch of autism is significant, whether if you're in the arts or in the sciences. Mm -hmm. And he further states that in these reports that he concluded, yeah. he felt that the individual who is most enhanced can really typify the individual's two conceptions of their own normality which means right. that the individual can be reflective based on the contributions based on their stimuli and the exposure to that stimuli because they're the ones who are the gift makers or the superiority makers that basically reflect on their supremacist values the other children for example well you understand that that that, that i mean just all that stuff you just yeah said that you thought that's basic that's just uh, that's um, that's just more of that kind of fascist, well, fascist yeah. type of well, yeah. mentality, yeah. and so that's you know that's what's wrong with that. And that, that's yeah. seems, but you, but but were you part of the um, activism to try to uh, expose the truth about? Hans well, Hans yes, well, yes, because unbeknownst to some people, eugenics laws are still part of the law books in the yeah. United States. Yeah. And even though they've been struck down since the late 1960s and yeah. there have been reparations by yeah. many people who suffered, who was, I mean, even though, there were, even though there were many victims, not just for us neurodivergent, but also within the Black, Hispanic, and Native mm -hmm. American communities who underwent sterilization yeah. uh, and they themselves um, yeah. underwent reparations for that because uh, they were told lies yeah. all their lives because they were told that they couldn't conceive when in fact yeah. the reason um, they prevent their birth from happening was to prevent so-called races from mixing from mixing yeah. and not only that but that's also a, that's that whole yes yeah. so what you're saying is that um the history of autism has that um is uh, I guess the word would be corrupted or, or yes. uh, by that, but 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 there's still a kernel there, right? That's good, right? There's still, yes. I mean, there's still like you know the the part that you know people scholars today are trying to, I guess, yes. wrestle with. But what do you when you, when you are you finding out about this around the time as a child, as a boy, and you're getting your diagnosis? So what was your so what was some? Um, I know there's so many questions that come up, of course, about bullying, about school environment, and about um, I know, just whatever comes to your mind, what you think about those years, and you think about your you're your coming to consciousness and, and, and awareness. Or, well, I can say for my well, I can say for myself that throughout my entire years in school, I was 
very quiet, but I never interacted because a lot of people didn't understand who I was mentally, socially, and psychologically right, right. because I was different than all other neurotypicals combined. Right, sure. And I had to, I, there was a lot of peer pressure at that time for me to fit in, but as I got older, I realized that it wasn't the case because I then realized for a fact that by the time I got into middle school, I had to realize that in order to be myself, I had to be what be who I am. Right. So one of the things I did growing up and, and one of the memories that has instilled in me uh, since then was reading. Um, and... Um, <laughs> Oh yes, that's look at all, look at look. I got all these. Look at all that. <laughs> yes. Oh yes. Reading. Yes. Uh, oh yes. <laughs> um, yes. Um, I don't know if you see in the background um, that I have a very huge book collection. So I have a lot of books. I'm showing it. Oh sure. Um, this is great. And Eddie and I love two things: books and clothes. Yeah. Well, that's a very big. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. This is only. I really love. I really love how organized your bookshelf is. You seem to have. You seem to have a really good system. Yeah. There's a lot more though because I have yeah. uh, books all around me, and I have yeah. a, a bookshelf right next to me, as I'm talking to you right now. Yeah. And um, I and for me, um, I buy books almost every day. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I save a lot of money. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and um, I buy a lot oh. of books, either between six or twelve books, because huh. um, as um, many of my friends know, I'm Eddie, you, you, Eddie, your mind is like mine. Oh yes, your mind is like mine. I didn't <laughs> something. Yes, yes. I wanted to, I wanted to show, show you show you this. Do you are you a fan of Dita Von Teese? Oh yes, she is one. Can of I show you something? Oh yes, yes. I have this. Oh, yeah. You remember when this came out about 20 years ago? Oh, yes. I thought you would appreciate this. Wow. And it was like, no, but it's, I have a first edition of this. Yes. Like, I, I can't, oh, yeah. It's probably hard to see, but. Yeah. I mean, she's a wonderful burlesque dancer, and she has made contributions to the neo-burlesque genre. And Absolutely. A lot of people don't know this as well, that she was instrumental in reviving burlesque as an art form. And it's kind of a... Yeah. I mean... Kind of, I mean, I only bring this up because you mentioned, I was reading your post on FB, and I thought I saw an, a, a um, Dita Bonte's book or something. I don't remember what it was. It was something you said, this was an influence on me. I thought, well, what? i got to bring out... <laughs> You know, well, Dita Von Teese is one of the great burlesque artists of our yeah. time, and she's a, a constant contributor to yeah. the art of neo-burlesque, and yeah. she has made a lot of great inroads in reviving that lost art, and I think that today, in the vintage community, we owe a great debt to her, because yeah. without that, we would not have a community such as this today, because, yeah. let's face it, yeah, she created the nostalgia of yesterday reflects on what's going to happen today and tomorrow that's true and by that she yeah. has single-handedly well she's created a lot of barriers well she broke she's broken down a lot of barriers and she is a great contributor and i think that the world will remember her 
50 to 100 years from now that she is a outstanding burlesque artist and i have a lot i have some friends who do burlesque and they take up a lot of inspiration from her because she has this authentic yeah. distinctive yeah artiste within her that embodies that and she yeah. is without a shadow of a doubt the best there is yeah. or not yeah that's probably true that's the only reason why because but that's a yeah you're, you're buying nine books i mean i don't um so do you speed read i guess you speed read right i don't speed read but i take my time because generally for me since I have a huge book collection and the bookshelf I just sh showed you just now, it's just a half of it because I have a sure. huge book collection. Sure. Yeah, it takes up my entire apartment. <laughs> and one of the things that I enjoy about books yeah. is the ability to understand and comprehend knowledge. Sure. And how knowledge is reflected within the beholder. And what I remember growing up reading was that when I was about, I think 19 to one year, between 19 months to a year old, my mom taught me to read. And I learned, I learned that by following what she told me to, right. to basically discover the basics, phonetics yeah. and all that stuff. So by the time I was about two or even three and a half years old, even after I was diagnosed, yeah. um, I was very far advanced towards um, the many peers that I interact with, especially now yeah. because a lot of people always come up to me and say, how do you know so much? And uh, I always tell them, That's well, I read a lot. I read a lot. Yeah, reading helps. Yes. Reading helps a lot. But did you, I guess, were, were, there, did you, were there certain pluses or positive aspects of being the generation you are? Because there's more, um, there's been improvements uh, uh, concerning neurodivergence, you think? Or, or is it, I mean, what I'm saying, do you know what I mean? Is, it, is, it a, is there a pluses there or is it? Uh, oh, yes. There's been a lot of improvements in the neurodiversity, yeah. neurodiversity community. Yeah. But I think there needs to be more change to happen because in our community, we still face barriers. We still face a lot of discrimination. Absolutely. And not only that, we face a lot of ableism because yeah. this society does not work for us because yeah. of the fact that our minds are shaped. It's actually designed the opposite of how we yes. take. Completely yes. opposite. Yes. It drives me It drives me insane. It's a daily. Yes. But so, so you're, okay, go ahead. You have more to say. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's. Uh, upsetting that's that a lot of people still face well a lot of people think in their own minds that their mentalities reflected within the stereotypes of who we are yeah. are still reflected in years past but it's not like that because yeah. we've been in existence for 70,000 years and we have made contributions right. in the arts sciences and the humanities absolutely and we have made inroads in achieving change and understanding the abilities and the confrontations that go behind it especially as we evolve in a new in a neurotypical society yeah we tend to really reflect on what we've been through and how we instilled that to 
really comprehend the scenario of what will happen next and in the future. So as long as we're still going to be around because we ha- we still face a lot of enemies, typically the anti-vaxxers for that sort, um, we're still going to be here 70,000 years from now. And sure. I can honestly... Well, what, what is your... What is your um... Um, what is your feeling about um, um, where we go from here? I mean, you have certain goals, political goals. Um, well, I what other, goal, what other goals for our community? If that's if that's um, and how do those goals connect with your work as a tutor, or is that are those separate? Or are they? Excuse me, if there's a connection there. Or, well, I was a tutor for many years. Then I turned to writing um, yeah. because I felt that I wanted to get my message out in terms of understanding and relating towards others how yeah. we feel living in a right. society such as this, which I have mentioned to you before, is able. does not work in a, in a specified order. Mm. So as far as our future goes with my activism, I think that what we see within ourselves is comprehensive towards what we feel within our own minds and our own hearts because we have to really delve into the mind of the the mindset of who we are and what we are. So right. it's not like we can't do the things that we want to do because the most basic stereotype of many people, especially neurotypicals in general, is that we can't do this, we can't do that. I right. think that's just wrong because we have the potential and the ability to do these kinds of things. Sure, sure. And the more we relate to this, the more we are able to really define our own inner humanity because right. we are empaths and our empaths mm-hmm. give us the quality of knowledge mm-hmm. and the know-how to really delve into what we find within ourselves yeah. and how we touch the lives and hearts of others. So as far as I'm concerned, then we have the potential to change the minds and hearts of others. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great approach. That's a great approach. I mean, I'm not as active as you are. I'm not, um, probably because I'm so busy, you know, writing music and it's doing this podcast, you know, I'm not really a political animal uh, to that extent. Um, but I'm glad you are. That's uh, yes. Well, basically, I, 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 well, basically, I identify myself as a free thinker, but typically, I consider myself to be a Marxist because I oh. think that, I think that coming from you, Mitch, uh, since you mentioned in that interview with um, Stephanie back in November, if my mind serves me right, that you and Stephanie share the same beliefs in terms of understanding and achieving the goals within. Um, the underdog. So I believe that would be. Right. I, should, I, should, I should clarify. I, I'm not a Marxist um, oh. at all, but I am a socialist. But that's a that's oh, a whole. Yeah. Oh yes, yes. We can we can work out those differences or, or similarities. Oh but, yes. Yeah. No. Oh yes. I but, mean, uh, I mean, yes. We both have the same political beliefs. Um, yeah. And I think that for a lot of us, especially those right. who lean left, I think that the underdog is our best friend. Yeah, I sure. also think that for many, for many of us, and especially in the autistic community in general, mm-hmm. we have a lot of leftists who are very active. So they That's are very passionate about social change and sure. the elimination of man's inhumanity to man based on its exploitation and yeah. how capitalism 
oppresses us yeah. to work for people who only profit to benefit their own interests and not for ourselves. Because right. I strongly believe that our ableism is a component of the oppressive capitalistic system that we experience within our society. So in terms of understanding our appreciation of all things left wing, then I could say within the bottom of my heart that the underdog is always going to be our best friend because right. I think that we should put humanity first and yeah. people first instead of profits. And I think That's that right. the artistic and psychosocial values of humankind reflect on our own creativity, whereas we can create and, and discover a new society which is built by the backs of our interests. Interests, right. And more than that, um, preserving the state of humanity for the state right. of what we benefit for ourselves and for many others. Because I think that nowadays, um, since we are living in a, well, typically we are almost moving into a multipolar world yeah. where um, a lot of the anti-imperialist powers are taking a big step in fighting back against American imperialism, capitalism, xenophobia, yeah. right. and um, racism which has been brought about by Western society and it's 500 years of capitalist imperialist exploitation of the masses of, of the masses of Asia, Africa, and the Americas. I believe that the theme of the working class as well as anti-imperialism in general is the strength and resolve of putting people in power for yeah. the sake of serving the needs of the people rather than serving the needs and interests of, of businessmen and oligarchs, which historically and generally typically use those interests to exploit the people for the sake of their own personal amusement and to really benefit from acknowledging their own existence, which is super flushes in their own negative sense. Yeah, that's true. That is true. Are you, um, so I know that you, um, have seemed to have a, a rich uh, understanding of things. When did you get into clothes? Like I'm into clothes. I've been into it for 30 years and you're a lot younger. Was it from the the vintage community or was it before that? Or when is that? Well, actually, the first, well, actually, uh, I was very much influenced by vintage and Italian fashion because growing up, uh -huh. my mom used to dress very wonderfully. And uh -huh. that in turn, well, she was basically an old fashioned individual. Okay. And she took a lot of influences from many years back because she grew up in the 60s. So oh, yeah. by the time I got older, I emolded myself into dressing more like my own authentic self, which is my, my, well, shall we say my masculine vintage self. Right, right. So one of the things that I was really fascinated was... Eddie, Eddie how many selves do you have, you think? Subs? How many selves do you have? Selves? Um, not not a lot. I mean, I think I'm, I have to check because um, mm. I think it's between five or six, but I still have to check because I think I got more last time, but I have to check them out to see what if I bought some or, yeah. or anything like that. Right. Well, you said your authentic self. I was just wondering, you know. Oh. If we contain different selves, I'm wondering if you... Oh, I mean, well, actually, what I meant was... Well, actually, what I meant was... was was when I say my authentic self, I mean my inward, outward ability to really define who I am because right. as 
I define my own perfectionism, I was basically knowing and trying to create something within myself that aligns with my own true wisdom. Right. And that true wisdom was to get my better self known before my unconscious self might overtake right. me. Sure. Is that something that's a daily, do you think it's a daily um, uh, practice? Or? Oh, yes, because I think that if you read yeah. Herman Hesse's Siddhartha, which is a very great book. What book? Um, huh? I'm sorry, what book was that? Uh, Siddhartha by Herman Hesse. Oh, yes, Siddhartha's great. Yes, yes. Is great. very great writer. And also a very great philosopher, by the way. That's right. Yeah. Uh, if you read his book, I, his I his treatise on the metaphysical and even the mm -hmm. uh, psychological aspects of the human mind typically mm -hmm. refi typically refine itself towards the truest, most aspects of the individual self. And when I say the individual self, we constantly come through multiple dimensions. And That's right. We, yes. Yeah. And as we go through time in space mm -hmm. we continue to emold ourselves within the cycle the psychoanalytical prospects of mm -hmm. dealing and knowing the true wisdom yeah. of defining our true destiny which is within the tenth dimension so as we are yeah. living now here on earth we are living in the third dimension so the third dimension is based on our preoccupation with materialism and Huh. I have a very strong stance against materialism because I'm not a material guy at all. Right. And as a strong minimalist, I believe that huh. the ethics and values of minimalism, which is having less for something that you gain in mm -hmm. order to benefit your true authentic self, which is basically part of huh. historic teachings going back as far as 1,000 to 1,200 years, years right. um, huh. we align ourselves within that type of dimension, but as we thrive and prosper and even grow at the same time, we still have to catch up within the 10th dimension because the 10th dimension huh. is there for us to acknowledge the true self and the true self right. that creates the inner wisdom that defines who we are, what huh. we are, what can we accomplish, and what can we do to serve huh. others in need? That gives me a lot to think about. I have to, I have to think about. So you identify as a minimalist, huh? Yes. Huh. Interesting. It's basically a understanding of non-materialism because right. people is. As a matter of fact, if you get to meet a lot of people and they yeah. tell you that if you're a minimalist and, and that person says, what's that? They'll tell you that it's a lesser form of materialism, but it's not generally the case because if, you, if you're a materialist and you're preoccupied or even distracted by what you don't want to, what you don't want to acknowledge in the first place. So mm -hmm. you, typically, well, you typically distract yourself with that. But furthermore, you typically define your true wisdom, which unfortunately, even if you come into your true wisdom in your fourth dimensional self, it does not align by your true aspects of reality under the knowledge of self, because mm -hmm. everybody has to have a knowledge of self. You, you yeah, that's a thing. Well, well, I, I, everybody, well, so that's interesting. Um, 
One of the things I like about you, Eddie, is you you speak with a subordinate clauses. Yes. <laughs> and you speak in like complete sentences. Oh yes. In paragraphs. Yes. Um, <laughs> do you think that the do you think that the quality of conversation has declined because people? Do you know what I mean? It's like. Oh yes, you, yes. What I What mean, do you think of the fact that what do people What do people What do you think of the fact that the world uh, values incomplete sentences and and you know right oh, and yes. just kind of very shallow. Yes. Shallow. What you have some looks like you have some thoughts about that. Oh yes, because it's <laughs> sad that now with the invention of cell phones, yeah, uh, people are so preoccupied on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and many other social media websites that right. they don't even realize what's really going on in the world. Yeah, because in order to have a in order to have a clear conversation, you have to really understand the basics. You have to sit down and look at yourself and the world around you and think about what you really want to do in terms of conversation in a conversation you have to interact and based on the interest of that conversation you right. can really align by right. what you're know what you're dealing and what you're knowing basically yeah. defining your own characteristics but in a more generalized sense of the term we tend to forget our inner inhibitions and just let bygones be bygones because bygone, right. having a little conversation is just too distracted for them so yeah. i think that nowadays yeah. especially as time goes on and since we're almost into the mid-2020s i think that conversation and even letter writing as well is now a lost art yeah letter writing we yeah. got it <laughs> yeah <laughs> so you're a fan of letter writing right oh well, yes i I, yeah. Yes, because uh, with that, well, if you go, well, if you put the two together, it's basically, yeah. it's basically formalized. Yeah. But in a sense that, are there other? Uh, hold that thought. Are there other Herman Hess books you'd recommend? Because uh, I think he wrote more things than Siddhartha. I think. Uh, oh Dave, yes. What were some of the other books you would tell um, people to to read by him? Because he. Yeah, I didn't mean well, to... it's a very hard choice because um, I like all of his work. Typically, his own treatises on spirituality and atheism, which is basically part of his theme regarding about, um, well, shall we say, the, psychoanaly the psychoanalytical self. Right. I think that with his writings, which are basically influential and yeah. basically um, part of the literary apophysis of basically every philosopher throughout the ages. I think that I can say that almost all of his work have somehow paid off. But mm -hmm. I think that if you read one of his early works, I forgot the name of it, but it deals with the realism and the specialties that go along with it, right. then right. I think that it aligns with what we say within ourselves and the mentality of the world around us. Well, I, I studied, so I read two of his books in high school as part of a class in fiction. Interesting. You know? And I'm trying to remember what the other one was. It was Siddhartha. And then it was it was it Narcissus and in, in um is that ring a bell? Narcissus. Yes. Yeah, that's the other one. Narcissus and um Again, that's very that's very complicated. That could be its own episode, you know. Certainly, yeah. Um, I mean, I was very happy um, 
when I talked to Stephanie, Stephanie and I both uh, shared that we're, we're both metaphysical. In other words, that we weren't, yes. we are aware that we're not just, you know, not just this, that there's another thing going on um, without defining too clearly what that other thing is. Right. But um, that's yeah. no thing. Um, and I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that you're interested in, in those things. You know? Yes. Um, I think metaphysics in general, I, I truly believe that the metaphysical qualms about oneself can typically define the imagery and the mentality of the human experience. So mm -hmm. by sure. studying Hess's work, I think um, Schopenhauer in general was also... Schopenhauer is very underrated. Yeah, because... Schopenhauer is very underrated. I actually think Schopenhauer... Well, say what you want to say about him because he's kind of... Oh, yeah, because I think he had the same... I think Schopenhauer was also one of the great philosophers of the, of the 18th century. And was autistic. Yeah. And right? uh, yeah, yeah, I think so, but I'm not so sure. I'm but sure. I think that. I'm putting my if, money on it. We could talk about, yeah. we could talk about autistics before diagnoses. Yes. I think um, Schopenhauer, who I'm greatly influenced yeah. by him, and he has such amazing um, ethics regarding about the interrelationships between reality and vice versa. That's right. His own authentic realism has somehow changed the course of the the psychosocial thought of the 18th and early 19th centuries because okay. at that time even during the age of enlightenment there was a new movement that was spread across western europe that reflected upon the comeuppance of the individual and right. they typically influence french philosophers who right. are trying to mold the distinctive aspects between their search for meaning and their own search of life based on their own mentality. The mentality. And their own metaphysical qualms about that is that Schopenhauer in his lifetime wrote many great articles and pieces mm -hmm. regarding about the state of the world through the metaphysical and even the realism yeah. that embodies the truest, most aspect forms of right. Right. human individuality and this was even before the existence of existentialism came into being yeah so i think that with it him, predicts that it predicts it a lot i mean of course don't you think there's a tension because isaiah berlin discusses the tension between the french and the germans historically in the west and there's this tension that the french tend to be and this is berlin's formulation very rationalistic almost yeah. anti-metaphysical and the Germans at that time, like Schopenhauer, were more open to mysticism, a little, little less rationalistic. Like, does that that you agree that there's that kind of um? Oh yes, because oh, yes, interesting. Yes, because I think that, well, even prior before the well, prior before the age of enlightenment, there was a series of philosophers, even basically using their influences from Greek and Roman philosophy, so. that. Right. The existence of the state of the world within their consciousness was right. aligned by the true mentality of their own authentic selves, namely by understanding and achieving the contributions of the soul. And when we think about the soul, for example, oh, that's a real fact. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We yeah. think about the reflections that go behind it and how they are intertwined. So, yeah. with that, and even, and even if you study um, many people such as Machiavelli, because Machiavelli, even before he wrote The Prince, uh, mm. he was very observant based on the, the relationship between 
the existence of society and the metaphysical aspects of society. Eddie, Eddie have, you, have you read Isaiah Berlin's The Originality of Machiavelli? Um, That's a great essay, an important essay. Oh, no, I haven't. Well, Isaiah Berlin makes the case that Machiavelli is this innovative thinker. I mean, he goes really far. He says Machiavelli, he says Machiavelli introduces sincerity. Oh, yes. As a con that sincerity was not a concept before. I mean, that's a very strong claim, but oh yeah, but don't you think that there's a Machiavelli has been misunderstood and misused by the right wing? Like the right wing does everything, they take great yeah. things from and yeah. try to make those thinkers their own, but is this kind of um selfish, manipulative? But that is so talk about the real Machiavelli, the, the ethical Machiavelli that's not well, yeah, well Machiavelli well. Contrary to what many people think about Machiavelli, Machiavelli was and is one of the great philosophers and even, mm -hmm. I could say, social scientists of all time. Absolutely. Because he Absolutely. himself believed that the ethics and values of society are intertwined with each other. Mm -hmm. And prior before um, Nietzsche and Hume, I mean Nietzsche and Hume, who were influential in borrowing most of Machiavelli's works, right. Machiavelli himself believed that that interrelationship between society and the general order of things, especially the power structure in general, is intertwined yeah. by the individual, not yeah. by the beholder. Because right. during the Renaissance, there was a shift in geopolitics where right. many of the monarchs of France, England, and especially um, the early czarist reigns of the Russian Empire, yeah. they created power structures within themselves to intertwine based on the interests of the nobility rather mm -hmm. than the fact that the people themselves are of the nobility. So if Machiavelli mm -hmm. himself at the time, who he was controlled by the Borgias, and the Borgias right. were right. one of the most influential families in the Renaissance, where they had many branches um, in basically almost every European world family then, and they still have the and they still have descendants now. When mm -hmm. speaking about the the um, the the British and even the, even the Norwegian royal families, yeah. then um, you start to see a new type of thought being processed. And, yeah, that's true. That's true. And. Well, that type of thought, when you say that type of thought is sort of a mixed bag, meaning well, yeah. it has some positive elements, it has some unethical elements, it has some prejudices, it has some progressive. Yeah. It's like some things are progressive, some things are reactionary. It's a weird, it's a weird mixture. You know, there's some things that are, that are kind of proto-democratic and then there are other things that are futile. Yeah. So it's not all right. It's a, it's kind of a mixture. I see. It's kind of, it's a mixture. Yes. Well, to sum up Machiavelli's legacy, he was. It's hard. Yeah, it's hard. Well, it's, well, to, yeah. well, I can try, but I can. Yeah, say just do it. it. <laughs> well, we. I can say from the bottom of my heart that Machiavelli was a genius in oh. defining ethics, yeah, because absolutely. even if you read the works of Thomas Huxley, who was a controversialist for that matter, but yeah. he instilled many basic influences within Machiavelli's work to typify the biological aspects of animals and especially in humans in general he sure. felt that the relationship between both of them have somewhat similar traits but not necessarily yeah. in the order of things that, typ that typify the natural variations between order and death and yeah. to basically mix them up all together to define 
what it is that defines their own eth uh, ethical values based on a traditionalist society, et cetera, et cetera. Right. It's interesting because in Isaiah Berlin, the originality of Machiavelli, he says that in Machiavelli, Machiavelli, you get the first time um, perspective taking. Yes. That uh, Machiavelli says, you know, the perspective of this society, this culture is very different than over here. And yes. Machiavelli says it's basically up to you, you know, which one you choose depending upon the result, results you get. Now, this was very scandalous. Oh, yes. Right? Because to even suggest such a thing was very yes. scandalous, particularly in the 1600s, right? 16. Oh, yes, because at that, oh, yeah. yes, because at that time, many yeah. officials, especially the Borgias, for example. There's only one way to. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They were very shocked at this thought. And yeah. as Machiavelli's ideas spread in mm -hmm. his lifetime, they yeah. felt that he was they felt that he was a subversive. Sure. And they tried to censor his works to the point where they basically burned the yep. original copy of the prince, but many other copies were saved, just to yep. give you a clear idea. But he himself was considered to be a controversialist in his own namesake because yeah. He wanted to create the distinction between order and society. So if you uh, equivalent that into today's society, whereas the crumbling capitalism that, we, that we're all experiencing, that's Machiavelli, it. Yeah, Machiavelli was right all along because he understood how power works, how yeah. power is instilled, and how power can be influenced. Frederick Engels. He also, he also understood that power can be transformed and, oh, yes. and altered, that it's not forever. It's not inevitable. It's not, right? It's not forever. It's yes. Not, yeah, which is an important. Yes. Um, Frederick Hengels uh, was very Hengels, much influenced yeah. by Machiavelli because was. there was a shift in political thought between the, the Marxists and even the socialists and anarchists of that particular um, ideology because after right. 1855, or, or should I say 1857 for that matter, there was a general shift in political thought because yeah. at that time, Engels wrote many articles attacking Marx's Communist Manifesto yeah. because he himself believed that it did not address the issues of humane society that revolves yeah. around man and the worker. So there yeah. was not only a shift in that, but there was also a new type of shift whereas governmental control of the worker can mean mm -hmm. that the creativity and even the free thinking yeah. aspects of the worker can right. be aligned based solely for the purpose of achieving that type of contribution. And well, that, that's, a, that, that's the, um, have you, so I highly recommend Heinrich's biography of Marx. Do you know about this new biography? I've heard of it. I highly, I've just finished the first volume. And there's two volumes to come, but it's really important connects to what you're talking about because it's basically the unsung Marx or sort of the, I don't know. I think you would really like it. I mean, I think oh, especially, yeah. I think especially if you are a Marxist, you gotta. This is, oh yeah, this is as big a deal I think in Marxist scholarship probably as anything is any of the classic, you know, from the yeah. I uh, think man. I think today, well, I think the Marxism of the 21st century is still the same as in the last century because. People yeah. tend to think that the Marxism of the 21st century was somewhat revolutionary, but despite the attacks yeah. by the right wing in general, especially many right wing conservatives and even um, the two party dictatorship, whereas they um, 
tried to simplify Marxism as a form of photonic fascism, which I disagree. Sure. I think that both centuries that are aligned within the Marxist thought continue to emold and even advance right. the shaping of humanity in general. And I think sure. that in this century, we might see a revival of that, typically Probably. only for the sake of realizing the dream within Marx that man is born free based on the creativity of their own mastery of their own environments. Well, that's what Heinrich talks about, because Heinrich in this book says that Marx... Um, so the, the mistake that historical Marxism made, according to Heinrich, yes. is that they reversed Marx's original... original um, in Marx, from what... And this is Heinrich's reading, and I'm undecided. I don't know. I thought about it. In Marx, consciousness is actually first. And yes. the powers of subjectivity is first. Yes. Isn't that interesting? The totally the opposite of what you're what we were taught, you know, when we were taught. And it has something to do with the ability, it has to do with the precondition of freedom. So, you know, Marx has this image of, of you hunt in the afternoon, you critique after dinner, you know, this thing. Yeah. You hunt in the afternoon, you create you food, you know, the idea of the person doing all these things. Yes. It has to do with freedom as a precondition. Yes. Freedom as a precondition. And that's that's the part of Marx that I do like. I don't think Marx totally succeeded in that personally, but but I do think that's the part of Marx that I that I do like. And I do think that um I think a lot of Marxists would do well to to go back at that. But anyway, I, I talked for too much. But yeah. I wasn't aware, I wasn't aware about the of course I'm a little bit there were conflicts between Engels and Marx, right? There was yeah. kind of more they weren't like married couple, really. Well, they were in some ways, but you know, they weren't. They were a quarreling couple, right? Sometimes too, right? I mean, was, oh yeah. I mean, um, within the Marxist spectrum, I mean, they has to had. Well, they had conflicts, but it, well, even before the thought of Marxism came into being, because the whole identity of being a, the whole identity of being a yeah. Marxist is to define the metaphysics of reality within societal aspects and their own point of view. Sure. So as Marx, who wrote that society is based on a scientific approach towards society and whatnot, mm -hmm. then it is the worker who is the scientist, because the scientist has to have That's a true. questioning of thought and the thought itself, yeah. which is a generalization of how, when, why we got into this point and how the foundations of that society are intertwined with each yeah. other. So I think going back as far as, well, even before the revolutions of 1848, you have to go back as far as 1837. Mm -hmm. Because in 1837, when Queen Victoria was crowned, mm -hmm. um, there was a new shifting of movement, even prior before the establishment of the Marxist thought that yeah. There were many thinkers, especially English thinkers, that had their own type of socialism. And that type of socialism was basically influential in the foundation of another type of socialism that was conceived even before the dawn of the 20th century. Do you consider, so, do you consider um, Mar um, William Morris as part of that? Or, or, um, would, he, or not, would you not put William Morris in that? In that uh... I think William Morris is a very great Marxist because he himself uh, has basically defined the aspects of what Marxism really is. And mm -hmm. besides William Morris, I think, I don't know if you've heard of Michael Parenti. 
I know Mike Parenti, yeah. Yeah. Uh he's still he's still around. I think he's about, yeah. I think he's ninety two years old. But he's, he's not NYU still, I think. I yeah. don't know. Uh, Michael Parenti, who is a very great Marxist scholar, and I've listened to a lot of his lectures on YouTube, he has defined his own generalization of what Marxism really is. Because when you speak about Marxism today, it's considered to be a dirty word. Even if you're a non-Marxist yourself, when right. you're a believer of, a believer of so-called laissez-faire capitalism, they think that Marx got it all wrong, when mm -hmm. in fact, um, it's not the case. Because Marx... Marx what, what, what Marx got right, so, I, so hold that thought. So to me, what, and again, I'm, not, I'm a non-Marxist, right? Um, he, he gets that there's this instability. He gets yes. the crack in the system. Yes. And that's the thing, that's the thing that he understands, right? That's yeah. kind of the um I guess it, it would be the elephant in the room that nobody Oh would. yes, yes. Yeah. I think that if yeah. many people well, generally speaking, Marxism um when you think about that word, especially if you're a believer of so called laisse capitalism, which yeah. doesn't exist at all, it typically refines the general attitude that Marx and Marxism are yeah. reflective on the general aspects of the yeah. beholder and the beholder itself is intertwined in yeah. basically discussing the merits of societal yeah. impact. So going back to the example I mentioned to you and especially Michael Parenti in particular who is a very fine um, scholar and, yeah. a very, and a very fine Marxist yeah, he has known for many years and especially throughout the development of humanity since millennia that the scientific prospects of man's spiritual and developmental growth is based on the haves and the have-nots and right. the attitude towards different types of classes even going back as far as before the establishment of the feudal era because in Africa or the right huh? You mean before feudalism? Yeah. That's going back pretty far. That's like, that's village, that's, you know. Yeah. That's going because if you study ancient Africa, if you study ancient mm -hmm. Africa, there were civilizations that predate socialism and they had their own communal communities where they distribute the wealth to the masses and they use the wealth they have to mm -hmm. benefit for their own sake and to benefit yeah. their own aspects of what they themselves can provide for each other. So if you think about many empires and kingdoms that were established even prior before the Judeo-Christian era, there was a different type of socialism that really worked for them because they themselves, well, actually, they themselves were the first socialists even before the Bible was actually written because if you read the unedited, well, if you read several transcripts of the Bible as well, mm -hmm. the earliest apostles in the Old Testament were socialists. All of them. Well, that's, that opens up a whole, because, it, yeah, that, so, I mean, I, I take Christianity itself as a religion is a form, is a, is a, is part of socialist tradition. Oh, yeah. Which is really ironic, because look at how Christians have embraced the right wing and yeah. denied the socialists. But that's a whole, that's, we could, that's a whole other, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So anyway, yeah. if you study if you study yeah. the Old Testament, there are several scriptures that relate towards uh, socialism. If you read the book of Matthew, there's one section where it transcribes that if you 
there's one scripture that tells you that if you plant a seed and if it grows, mm -hmm. and if you plant that seed tenfold, it grows manifestive. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that it provides that the growth and the seed that's, that is within the earth, uh -huh. it refines upon the sharing of the wealth and the sharing of resources because we need to share those resources to benefit what others might don't have. Because the conception of Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, Come despite right. its corruptive nature, right. um, and I'll tell you more. I'll tell you that more in a second. Is the the actual true wisdom right. of these religions is yeah. the is the is the reflectiveness that the working class is contributive towards mm -hmm. the environment. And the environment per se is reflective on the beholder where we become the observers of right. all things that are, in, that are intuitive yeah. and within this intuition that we all have based on our based on our observations right. and it is refined by knowing and sharing with each other the humane aspects of what a society could be without all the corruption involved. Yeah, that's it. That's that's really well put. I mean, it's interesting. I didn't know we would be getting into all these things. Are there, is there anything that that you left out you want to talk about? Since uh, either about autism or ableism or well, what well, ableism or, or 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 just whatever, any ideas or about what you? Well, I want to go back to um, my autism journey because I okay. think you might be interested. So, getting back to what to what I said. Uh, yeah. An hour ago, since we now since we're now under the sixty-one minute mark. Oh, do we have uh, a deadline? Huh? Oh, do we have a deadline? Is there a certain? Oh no 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 no. I mean, we, we can talk as long as we can talk as oh, long as time. Right. Anyway, so um, the reading, for example, has helped me to define my own wisdom, and right. it has given me a lot of sense and purpose to the point yeah. where I have a strong respect towards intellectualism, and I think that. If people continue to embody this thought, then I think the world wouldn't be such a very hectic place to live on. Mm. Because I think that yeah. nowadays we're getting more anti-intellectual by the second. Yeah. And I think that we need to get back to the basics of things because in all of us who have a deep, refined sense of the written word, we have a unique chance to change things for the better. And I think that, and I think it goes through not only books, but through observation. So, as a matter of fact, one of the books I'm currently reading right now, I'll show you the book right now. Let me, um, give me one second. Um, currently, I'm reading. Now, you really are reading more, more than one book at a time, right? Well, yes. I, read I, like very, I, like, I like very much your suit. Are you going to talk about how you get your stuff is all vintage? Let yeah. me show you this. Let me show you something. <laughs> I wore a vintage suit coat for you. Really? Yep. Just because in honor, this is from 1969. Look at the date on that. Nice. This is from one of the tailors that made Sean Connery's quote of 007 James Bond. You nice. can see some of the lapels and you can see. That's like, isn't that something? I thought you'd appreciate that. It's not 30s. Apologize. That's a, I you know, it's 60s, but. And this ties 30s, though. Ah. So anyhow, I didn't mean to. Yeah. You're gonna get the book. I'm kind of kind of get get 
train of thought here. Where's the book? Well, uh, here it is. Uh, it's um, John Lewis Gaddis's George F. Keenan and American Life. Uh, I'll show you a couple oh, he's, of books. He's great. Oh, I love Keenan. Yeah. I love Keenan. Yes. Love um, so you read the biography. I yeah, that's um I have to confess I haven't read that yet. That's on my that's on my to do, that's on my um list. Yeah. So you know that. Um in case you don't know who um George F. Keenan was, right. uh, he's basically the second ambassador to the Soviet Union. That's right. And throughout the Truman administration, he was primarily responsible for writing a detailed report. Right. It's now basically known as the Keenan Telegram. Right. Um, and it basically talks about the threat of the Soviet Union as a dominant superpower. That's true. But at the same time, the United States and the, and the Soviet Union had different geopolitical interests. That's true. So basically, in the telegram, he stated that the Soviet Union was a threat to America's interests rather than yeah. the fact that their own inward abilities as a nation would be derived solely for the purpose of dealing with the understanding of the Russian people themselves, most specifically um, Stalin, who the, who Harry S. Truman felt that he was a figurehead. Mm. And I think that for his part of that, mm. I think that there was a lot of mistrust between both Truman and Mr. Keenan because there were some because there were some direct direct talks between himself and Truman because yeah. he wanted to continue establishing relations with the Soviet Union even after uh, Franklin Delano yeah. Roosevelt uh, yeah. established relations with the Soviet Union in 1944. Yeah. And Truman himself wanted to condense that because he felt that he did well, he wanted to condense that because he felt that it was going too much in terms of influence. Yeah. Most specifically, um, the growing outcomes of what would later become the third world, for that matter, mm -hmm. the anti-colonialist and anti-capitalist struggle uh, yeah. to remain um, neutral. Mm -hmm. So, by 1947 to 1948, and this was even before the start of the McCarthy era, Mm -hmm. And the and the hearings that are on that were underway by the House of American Activities Committee, mm -hmm. and of course he had to deal with um, the Green Party, which was run by um, um, well the Green Party at that time, which was a well basically a progressive leftist party. You're talking um, about Henry Wallace. Did you see Henry huh? Wallace? Are you talking about Henry Wallace? Or the, or yes. The, uh, yeah. 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 Because um hem because he met with Henry Wallace yeah before the telegram came out yeah. and he wanted he wanted to he wanted to continue establishing diplomatic relations with the Soviet Union because mm -hmm. himself and William Z Foster who was one of the founding heads well he was one of the heads of the uh, of the American Communist Party yeah um, they gravitated towards the Soviet Union because they felt that its paradise of market distribution and the freedom of the worker from exploitation was beneficial within the prospects of the American worker and yeah. Mr. Keenan himself viewed that as somewhat of a threat because he felt that geopolitical interests inside the United States and even in Europe during the Marshall Plan, it felt that it was constituted as a threat yeah. and throughout the Truman administration, they were trying to play second fiddle to Stalin. 
because Stalin knew at that time that the telegram existed, and furthermore, right. he felt that the growth and power of American military um, might throughout the entire world was basically influential in the prevention and even the growth and namesake of industrial interests which were not aligned towards so, so-called democratic values. Right. So, well, I it's interesting you're, re- you're reading that book because I'm sure there's a lot of things in there that I that you're yeah. learning that I haven't I haven't done. Yes. Um, I'm also reading um, Anthony um, Abbott's The Rise of Rome. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, I'm halfway done. I'm, I'm halfway through the book, though. And the next book I'm going to read is, um, well, one book by Robert Greene. I forgot the name of the book, but it revolves, oh, oh yes, The, the Laws of Nature. Laws of Nature, right. Yeah. right. Yeah. And I'm planning to read uh, My Life in Art by Stravinsky. Oh, wow. I have a copy of that somewhere around here. Robert Kraft and oh yes, Robert Kraft and Stravinsky. Yeah, really great. So um, I keep my mind very stimulated. <laughs> I guess not. Yeah. What do you think about John Lewis Gaddis as an historian? Do you agree with the um, the popular perception that he's one of the he's he's really one of the um, oh yes. Yeah. I think he's a I think he's a very great historian, but I think that yeah. his own analysis of the Soviet Union was somewhat um, not basic to a degree because even yeah. after 1946, despite um, the leadership of Joseph Stalin and, and and many people in the left continued to criticize him as some sort of a tyrannical figurehead, and many yeah. people in the left. Um, uh, who continued to praise Stalin? Uh, many people left the American Communist Party, for that matter, because they felt that he was trying to destroy what Lenin worked for, even during and after the after sure. the Russian Revolution. I mean, I don't. So, I don't I, that's a whole. That's a whole. Um, that could be its own episode. You know, the history yeah. of the history of communism, actual communism. Yes, it's a, it's a very. Um, it's a quite a history. It's quite yeah. a history. And it's really yeah. complex. I sort of think um, <laughs> I don't know where do you want to go next. Do you want to, Do you want to do um, You want to talk more about autism? You You will probably. Oh yeah, through. yeah, yeah. You want to? I mean, at a certain point before we conclude, I want to play some music for you. Oh, good, good. And the music I play for you will reflect you in music. Oh yeah. I do this with guests sometimes. I I did it with I don't know. Yeah, I try to do it when I can. So let me know when you're ready for that. But, but continue right. to talk about about your autism because so, so I guess you feel differently now than you did ten years ago, right? Or eight years ago about autism and sort of you you're kind of um, it's yeah. kind of like a journey. It's a evol- evolution, right? And I'm wondering. Yes. Um. So. Yeah. I mean, I was di- I was diagnosed when I was three years old because yeah. between two and a half. Well, actually. Two to two and a half years old, I was mute. I couldn't even speak a word at all. And they felt no. that something was wrong with me. So yeah. they took me to an evaluation and they uh-huh. found out that I was on the autism spectrum. spectrum right. So they put me in a special class where I could interact with my own kin. And as, yeah. time, and as time evolved, I grew up with this notion that, well, unfortunately, um, in my own personal observation of things at that time I felt that 
I was less than because they thought that I was different. But as I got older, especially before my teens, I realized that I had to grow as a person and, mm. and to be more reflective within myself. So the more I did that, you know, the more if I, I, able to I mind really if I ask you a question because you really, um, right now, you're a great speaker, really Thank exceptional. Thank you. And I'm sure some of that's hard work on your part. Maybe it's natural, but you said that, it, you know, you didn't, you didn't talk earlier. You did not. So I guess I'm wondering is when, you, how did you develop this out of that? Is that, I guess that's too, probably a big topic, but I'm, does this connect to what you're. Well, I did. Well, I underwent a lot of speech therapy growing okay. up. So I was able to recognize the strengths and values that I have, okay. but I did most of the work by myself because I wanted to improve my own lot in regarding, right. in regarding the, um, reflections of my own true self and my own true nature so right. as time went by even before my 20s i got even better at it so right. the way i'm speaking now is reflective on my progress because oh, of course in my own personal credo progress means that the entire reflection of your own self is single-handedly worked on within the beholder and if you're a big believer in faith then fate will reward you in a way that uh, benefits your true wisdom and your own uh, true self. Faith. Yes. In the because, because in order to understand your true knowledge of self, you have to ask yourself these provocative questions. What do you want to do to better you. yourself? What, what do you want to be within yourself? How to know yourself when you want to be in yourself and to be in yourself when you're at best within yourself. So, do you mind repeating those questions? I'm going to write them down because they're great. Oh, good, the good. I had a, what is it? I'm going to write these down. Can you remember what you just said there? Yes. Does the audience mind if they're. What, you want to be, <laughs> what did you say? What you want to, what was the first one? It was. Um, um, to be yourself, to get to know yourself. That's number yeah. one. Get to know yourself, right? The audience is going to have a great uh, a self-help part of the show here. Oh yeah, get to know yourself, and what's this? And then get to know yourself within. I mean, get to know yourself within yourself to be yourself. Uh -huh. To be yourself, okay. Uh, number three is to be to be yourself within yourself to know yourself. Interesting to be yourself within yourself to know yourself. That's interesting. And lastly, to know oh. yourself, yeah, to know yourself within yourself to be whatever of yourself. Huh. With that, it generally means huh. that after you complete your inner journey towards enlightenment. You have to have these four in tow. And huh. combining them all together, you achieve complete satisfaction and elation. You cannot hmm. have that unless if you're distracted. Because even huh. if you're distracted, then you have to have something that is not aligned by huh. what society tells you. Uh -huh. Because society is going to tell you all the time that you can't do this or you can't do that. Right. Or they'll tell you the other thing, oh, that's life. Because you have to ask yourself a lot of questions all the time. You can't just stick around and sure. you can't just stick around and let people walk all over you. Oh, because, right, right. Because 
when you get to know yourself, then you get to you get to know yourself now. So by that time, you realize that within certain points that define your inner wisdom, your inner wisdom is defined by your true and innermost sanctum that is within your own consciousness. And consciousness or a or any variation of consciousness whatsoever, it defines solely for the purpose of achieving wisdom and achieving a form of wisdom that is aligned by the beholder. Huh. Beholder. You want to say more about that or is that kind of um Um that's about it. How do you feel what do you the beholder? It's interesting. Well, when I say the beholder, I mean the master of yourself because okay. um, I've read Nietzsche. I think Nietzsche yeah. is one of the great philosophers okay, right. um, ever. I have one of his books um, on the ethics of genealogy and Esse Homo. Right, and in the book, if you read the entire book overall, it states that yeah. within man's capacity, they have the interrelationship between the, the person and the person itself who is by the beholder. The beholder is generally oh. the master who knows his or her own craft. So you get to know the craft, the craftsmanship of that person, oh. but the craftsmanship is created solely for the individualist self. Because uh -huh. you can't be an individualist by becoming your own master. So oh. being your own master and being your own master is the namesake of gaining oh. and supplementing control within your own life. Oh. And if you have a knowledge of self and you have a master of your own of your own environment, then oh. all things come to pass and you generally have overcome everything that has stood against you oh. and how it really benefits what we are in this world. And realizing that all things have to come to a certain degree of any beginning, middle, and the end. So all of all, all these three huh. have to have something in line, and that is semblance. And if you don't have any type of semblance in you, then you're just wasting your time. In other words, right. why are you wasting your time when you're dealing with your whole wisdom, right. which is supplemented by outside forces who are against you and want to take a grab at you solely okay. for the purpose of dealing with your own personal namesake and how they want to use that against you for oh. purposes of a nature that is not all your own. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm very, huh. So is that connected to when you talk about fate? Is that what you, was, is, is it like a coming together? Well, yes. You mentioned the word enlightenment and fate, and these, are, of course, are, as you know, these are. There's a lot of volumes written about these words and what they mean. Oh yes, yes. So I you, think that what Stephanie, I, well, well, Stephanie, I agree on one thing, and that is only one. Well, there's more. Okay. <laughs> but, but the one, but the one. I wish, thing I wish we had her here. I wish you were here. I just kind of. Yeah, because watching. I, no. Hey, Stephanie. Well, well, she is watching, by the way, so oh, you can say hi to her. Hello, Stephanie. I hope you. Hey, Stephanie. How are you? Good. Yeah. yeah. Is... Um, Stephanie, I, Stephanie, and I have something in common, and that is the metaphysical self. And we, uh, as metaphysical people, we are aligned yeah. towards dealing with the inner destiny of 
our spiritual, mental, psychoanalytical, and psychological selves. Mm -hmm. So we go through this process all the time, and we define our own true wisdom because our wisdom makes us even stronger. And when we have that, then we can say for ourselves that we breathe in and breathe out our lungs freely without any hindrances. So we deal with this aspect and we deal with what we can to benefit these types of contributions and the contributions that we're going to have unless we ourselves take the bait in taking risks. So always, always take risks. Always when, take risks. Huh. Yes, always take risks when you're trying to do something that, that benefits you and you only. Because nobody is ever going to tell you take, this. Always, hold on. Always take risks when you're trying to do something that benefits you only. Yes. And then. Is what you're, hold that. And then hold the, and then. So is what you're saying is that a, a mistake people often do is that they don't take the risk? So it, it looks to me like people can make one of two mistakes. They either are afraid to take a risk or they don't know what would benefit or harm them. They're unaware. Well, yes. Because right. they're unaware. So those are two things that come to mind, right? Those are, you have yes, to be, yeah. Yeah, because when many people try to presume that they're perfect and they're not, then you have right. to try to be, well, you try to become a perfectionist. Well. Because even perfectionist people are very eccentric. And I don't, don't want to just, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> People, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I could say wholeheartedly that I myself am an eccentric because. Yeah, I am too. Yeah. Because. Stephanie's an eccentric. Yeah. yeah clearly. We we align towards the reality of the destiny that is within right, us. Right. Right. So. When we say to ourselves that we define our own inner happenings, then yeah. we always reflect on our own inhibitions and the inhibitions that are truly for the sake of the comeuppance of the beholder, then it goes both ways. So eccentricity and being different from the norm are two of the greatest things you could ever have because you could align yourself by reacting and changing the minds and hearts of others. And even if you're an eccentric, then you can also change your own perceptions of yourself and yeah. knowing that people will love you for it, even though they might hate huh. you for becoming different. So they'll, they'll, in the end, love you for it. They'll see the integrity of it. Yes. So I think that the ability of the individual is based on one simple thing, and that is to defy barriers, destroy all barriers, and create something new, which will not only shock people, but also change the minds and hearts of others. Wow. You give me a lot to think about, Eddie. I have to say, I have to say. Thank you. I'm very. Um, I even wrote things down. It's not always that I write write stuff down. Thank you. Thank you. I'm gonna play a little music and then we'll say goodbye and conclude. Uh, is that okay? Oh sure. I guess I have to move. I don't know what. Again, this is my attempt to describe you in music, which is, after all, not the easiest thing. I don't think. Didn't say it was gonna be easy, but. I don't know.
Wonderful, Mitch. Wonderful. <laughs> I don't know if that, I don't know how accurate that was, but <laughs> that's, uh... I can honestly say, though, it has a touch of Gershwin with a bit oh, of. Sure. Well, well, well that's can, funny. Yeah. I can also see an <laughs> influx of Copeland and even um, oh. Aaron Copeland, the, the composer. I love Copeland, but I was not aware of that. I didn't know that was. Yeah. Because I've listened to some of Copeland's compositions, and they also have a very distinctive influence between modern jazz and mm -hmm. even um, the swing genre in general. Because mm -hmm. if you listen to one of his compositions, which is the Appalachian Spring from 1942, which is one of my favorite compositions. That's a great piece with yeah. Martha Graham, the Martha yeah. Graham uh, choreography. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that he does in it's... the composition is he reflects on the naturalist scene and imagining himself to be a part of that scene where 
he acknowledges that the existence of nature all around us is mm-hmm. typically is typified by the beholder. And I think that the individual has a kind of destiny within him or her, for that matter, to really become much of what nature intends us to be. So I think that by studying his compositions, because um, Copeland himself is still one of the great American composers. Oh, I love Copeland. I have... um... You can't see, I have all, all scores of Copeland and biographies and I've, yeah. got, I've got all the, I've got, I can bring out all my Copeland biographies. So you, you were shrewd to, yeah. with that. this particular piece is not really, I mean, maybe it was Copeland, but it's much more, um, I don't know, it's, I think a lot more Art Tatum and it's a, it's a, a little different. Yeah, I mean, Art Tatum, I mean, Art Tatum is a great, great jazz pianist because yeah. I, listen him, I listen to him all the time. Yeah. As a matter of fact, my um, coming back to what I said earlier before the interview yeah. that my preferences for music is classical music and jazz. Sure. Um, in case if anybody doesn't realize, for that matter, and especially in my life in general, one of my also one of my earliest memories growing up, being on the spectrum is uh, is when I was about, I think, one and a half years old, the first jazz record I listened to was Nat King Cole's variation of Route 66. Oh, wow. It's so beautiful. Yeah. It's such a beautiful. Yeah. You heard that? Think, wow. Yeah. But many people wow. don't realize that it was written in 1946. And it right. was, I mean, well, actually, it was composed in 1943, but it wasn't recorded in 1946 right. because of the 1942-1944 musician strike. The musician strike. And, yeah. yeah. And one of the things I love about Route 66, it right. has a deep, it has a deep 3-4 up-tempo beat mm-hmm. that is clearly in line with the rhythm and blues subgenre. Mm-hmm. So, oh. I think that with many people who have recorded Route 66 yeah. um, since then, and it's considered to be a jazz standard, it was I mean, it's considered to be a jazz standard to this day, with mm-hmm. lyric, well, music and lyrics by Johnny Mercer. Mercer, one, one of the great. Well, it was a TV show too in the fifties. Oh yeah, yeah. It was well and yeah. then of course I'm sure you know the Manhattan Transfer version. Oh yeah, great, 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 great. I think, I think yeah. the great one. Well, I think if you compare the arrangers of today, I mean, Walter Murphy is one of the great arrangers. I think, I yeah. think, yes. yeah, the man who composed a fifth of Beethoven. That's a Beethoven. Yeah. Who yeah. thought? Yeah. <laughs> We'd be discussing him today. Yeah. Um, uh, I, 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 huh. Generally, I generally I can see him as a, well, I can see him as a Latter-day Nelson Riddle. Yeah. And, well, that was certainly. Yeah. And, if, and comparing Walter Murphy with Nelson Riddle. Never thought of that. great arrangers. Yeah. Is typically aligned by their craftsmanship and their greatness for authentic taste, especially in music. And I think we lost some of that in jazz today because basically pop hasn't moved itself towards the jazz genre and subgenres, and they turn it into something else. But I think, as we all know, music has to evolve somehow, so we tend to come up with new forms of music, especially um, rap music and... um, Electronica, EDM, and now uh, with many other variations of electronica, such as right. teen pop and techno pop. Right, right. So I think that as we go along throughout this decade and the next to, and the next several decades to come, 
we might see a whole new shift in music because music is ever shifting. You can have I think that, um, I think that, well, the one thing that I agree with is the great quote by none other, none other than the great Linda Ronstadt, who said that yeah. musicianship is based on three things, story craftsmanship and the telling of the story throughout based on mm -hmm. the experiences of that individual. Mm -hmm. So if you read her autobiography, which is Simple Dreams, and that's beautiful, and beautiful. Uh, yeah, and she's coming beautiful. out with a new book in October called um, "Feels Like Home," mm -hmm. uh, where she talks about her childhood. And I'm a big fan of hers. I love her music, especially yeah. her music with um, Nelson. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's wow. Yeah. I didn't know we. I didn't know you were a fan of those. The, those those albums. Yeah. If yeah. you listen to her variation of What's New, which is one of oh. the yeah. I mean, yeah. she hits it from the heart. Well, first of all, the tempo is incredible. Oh, yeah. Everybody does it does it the wrong tempo. Yeah, because with Linda, when she did that, she mm -hmm. had something that mm -hmm. really aligns within the heart. Mm -hmm. And if you look if you look up the music video, which she did, which is on YouTube now, and yeah. and um I can tell you, it's very fabulous. I mean, from the from the beginning oh, to the yeah. end, it's still fabulous. Oh yeah, it it touches yeah. the heartstrings, and you realize that within yourself. And if you listen to it time and time again, you say yeah. to yourself, "That's music." Oh, and yeah. and um and she did great things for the rehabilitation of the Great American Songbook that nobody mm -hmm. else did. Because in an interview that she did, she wanted to bring them out of the elevators because at that time it was going through right. a rough phase where right. um, it was all elevator music and yeah. the great crooners such as Sinatra, Rosemary Clooney, and basically right. many of the, yeah, yeah, so on and so on. They were being reduced to lounge acts and were, she yeah. felt that, she felt that it wasn't like that, that because the whole aspect of american popular music was the standards yeah. so sure. so even if you listen to to two of her under um albums that she did with nelson riddle uh lush life and for some unknown reasons um mm -hmm. uh one song which she did um around midnight which is mm -hmm. a standard by by the, the great elon monk yeah. she executes that perfectly she comes up slow and she goes along whispering into the atmosphere within the words and how they seduce each other. And it's the same way with um, with um, I'm a Fool to Want You. Mm. And all of it combines much mm. great substance. Mm -hmm. You could, I mean, in her huh. own namesake, and even with the songs that she did in with with a with a collaboration with Nelson Riddle, um, mm. It defines meaning, and and to this day, when people hear those types of songs, especially those three albums, people people get so blown away by by our versatility because not not any artist no. in any generation can even no. achieve such collaborator. And I think that right. she has been the That's most it. influential oh. artist that ever was and that ever will be. And I think that she has a place yeah. in every. Oh, generational fan base who has been touched by her singing. And I think that uh, because of the 
because unfortunately because of her Parkinson's, which was re-diagnosed mm-hmm. as progressive progressive supranuclear palsy, which robs mm-hmm. her of the ability to sing because mm-hmm. of the brain impact the brain impecularies that prevent her from breaking that high note. Uh, I think that I think that we've lost part of her singing that we grow up so much and how it has yeah. influenced generations. Mm-hmm. I mean, I for myself, I've also listened to her uh, one of her other albums, which was Cancelas de mi Padre, which I've listened to wh- when I was growing up, which is still one of the best-selling albums of all time. Right. And not, not many people know this, but she is Mexican-German. Mm-hmm. And people get shocked by that because they thought that she that, that she never had any type of um, darker skin within her. And they thought that she was some sort of a chip off the old block or some sort. Mm-hmm. So... No, she's... Yeah, that's... No, she's one of the greats. In my book, she's one of the top singers. Yeah. Not, and I'm happy to I'm happy to hear you mention her. Yeah. And I, you know, that's wow. This has been quite a conversation. So we discussed so many things. And yeah. I just want to thank you for your generosity and time. And we should do this again, maybe. Yeah. I mean, ideally, let's try to talk to Stephanie and have the three yeah. of us. What do you think? I, oh yeah, I think we, we should, should do a three-way conversation because I think absolutely. that in all intents and purposes, I think yeah. that we had a lot of fun talking. Oh and yeah. I think that with with our own similar traits that we mm-hmm. talked about, especially for us people on the spectrum, yeah. I could say on a high note that I'm proud to be on the spectrum and yeah. I'm proud to be who I am because yeah. I've changed so much. Yeah. And a lot of people, regardless whether if they hate me or not, because huh. sometimes on Facebook I get a lot of hate hate messages talking about yeah how worthy I am and how much paragraphs I post up on my Facebook page, right, right, right. which I have to um, ban a lot of people because of their insignificance and their immaturity. Oh. And yeah. um, I think that the best yeah. way to have your own best revenge is by being yourself and being yourself, being yourself. is knowing what you're going to do that day. Wake sure. up and, and that's all you got. Yeah, yeah. Because many people don't have that. Yeah. And even if you inspire yourself to be the better person you you're meant to be, then you have the potential in you to change mm-hmm. what you think is wrong and do something that, do something that is right. Because nobody's ever gonna nobody is ever gonna tell you that you can be good or you can be bad. Because it's a choice of knowing whether you're gonna do it and whether if you're planning to slack off and not do anything mm-hmm. and letting people stoop over you so i think that a lot of people need to realize that if you believe in yourself despite Mm -hmm. what many people go against you then all you have to say is is do the best you can and just go with the flow because i think that in the end it pays off and i could say that since i'm almost 27 years old in october yeah I'm I'm 26 now. I'm I'm going to be 26 in October. And well, so you're a Libra like me. Oh yes, yes. I'm October 22nd, and you're what? You're October. What was it? October 20th. <laughs> what do you make of that? And that's well, something- I'm not I'm not shocked at all because um, 
We're birthdays two days away, both Libras, except I'm 54. I'm not 27. I got to tell you, Eddie, 27 seems so long ago. Maybe it wasn't yeah. that long ago. I don't know. Yeah, because a lot of people like to tell me all the time that I look older. And they get shocked no. when I tell them that I'm younger. I mean, no. even if I tell them I'm 26 years old, they wouldn't believe it because they thought I'm no. older. And but you look your age. You don't look old. Yeah. You're, what they mean is that you speak intelligently. And so you speak well, old. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, um, I I best describe myself as an old soul. So yeah, I like a lot of vintage. Yeah, I, I like sure. a lot of vintage, and um, sure. I think that um, there's a lot of great influences in my life that I would like to talk about in the next conversation that we're gonna have with Stephanie, hopefully in the not too distant future. Okay. Um, but I can end it on a high note by yeah. stating that. Whatever that you do, when it refines all things vintage, and as a matter of fact, not to change the subject, but tomorrow, yeah. I'll be taking part in a nostalgic fan trip to the Rockaways on the 1930s R19 subway cars. Oh. And, yeah, and uh, I'll be meeting up with some of the rail enthusiast people that I know. I'll wow. be dressing up in casual vintage, so I'll sure. be wearing an ascot. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I might be even. I might. I'm. I even might be wearing a beret that day. But let's see what happens because beret, temperatures yeah. here temperatures are going to be um, ninety, probably Well, not exactly because tomorrow we're going to have temperatures in the well in the morning. Temperatures are going to be in somewhere around sixty-seven to sixty-nine degrees. Oh. Then it's going to be seventy-nine. Okay, so it's but not too high. Cool. Right. Yeah. Good. But That's the good thing, is, but the good thing though, is that yesterday hmm. they released um, this year's predictions for the 2022-2023 almanac, okay. and they're predicting. I don't know if you know this, but no. they're predicting that we're going to have a lot of frigid temperatures, unlike many years past, and we're going to have a lot of heavy snow starting okay. around January. Okay. Yeah. So. Well, even I don't, a lot of people don't like winter, and even though winter is my favorite season, oh. even, even though many people like to disagree with me because they complain about, oh, you can't go anywhere, and and the the, yeah. the, the, the sidewalk is all slippery and all that. Yeah. I mean, I'll take winter because um, yeah. because the best thing that you can ever enjoy about a season is its girth, warmth, and mm -hmm. the reality of believing that it fuels your soul mm -hmm. i remember one time actually back in january we had a very huge snowstorm we got up by mm -hmm. i think 10 to 12 inches but not a lot yeah, yeah. and i went outside and i was walking down um woodside avenue and it was so fogged up you couldn't even see anything huh. and as i was walking down and as I was taking videos, there's a video that I took yeah. with a post on Instagram mm -hmm. of well of the heaviest of the heaviest of the heavy snow coming down, mm -hmm. all set to music by Via Lobos. Oh, I love you. Um, um, Mark and Alice, the, the book. Yeah. yeah. Great, great composer. Mm -hmm. In the video, I talk I in the video and in the caption below, I talk about how it gives you a sense of identity and the seasons, no matter how they change, they give you that authentic mirthness. 
that really gives you a sense of quality and the welcoming quality that defines all things that will come to pass now and forever. So you really have to understand that all seasons have to change somehow, but the one season that you have to really align by the innermost standards of knowing your true self, your true destiny, is the excuse me the things that you recline yourself to be, and in total, you shape your own image and the mentality that gives you that Mm -hmm. image in Mm -hmm. order to. Be your own self, whether if it's better or likewise. Well, thank you, Eddie. That was very inspiring. And um, talk to Stephanie, and we'll I'll talk to my producer, Laurie, and we'll do it. Oh so, yeah, we'll um, do it. Mitch, um, thank you for inviting me to be on the show. I had a very wonderful time, and it was a very stimulating talk overall. And I have to say, I am a great admirer of your work. And oh. I've listened to the CD that you yeah. sent me. Oh, and yeah. And I just want to say thank you for sending me that because uh-huh. um, your compositions are very wonderful. No doubt about that. I think that you will go down history as a very fine composer oh. because I know that you have something that really benefits from you. And I can see you as a oh. modern. I know it's shocking, but I can say this from the bottom of my heart. You are a modern-day Aaron Copeland, with a touch of Stravinsky, for that matter. That's very nice of you, Eddie. I, I don't know. That's fine. <laughs> I, don't, I just do what I can, but thank you. That's very, yeah. that's oh, very and by nice. By the way, I'll be watching your um, performance on the 27th, if I'm correct. First, the, I think. Oh, the 21st. Which is the um, the end of summer concert, which you're going right, to do right, quartet. Right. I don't know if Stephanie might be watching that, but I might tell her. Well, we'll get a bit. I hope we can do a. One of my directions before I go of the show is to have more roundtable type of things. You know, oh, more yeah. than just two people. And tech tech wise, we're able to do it now. If yeah. you're three or four people, so let's work on that. Let's do it. Oh and yeah, we will. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank uh, you for yeah. the comments and everything, and be safe and. Thank you. I guess I'll see you next Sunday or whenever that is, that concert. So. Uh, yes. Enjoy the uh, railroad. YouTube Live, I believe. I think so. I yeah. Think so. Yeah. But if not, I'll watch it on YouTube where right. you might be re- you might be recording it. So right, we're recording. Uh, well, that's the, the way things place. are now. Yeah. That's yeah. the way everything is. I have the time and place to watch it. But right. nevertheless, right. Um, it's going to be a very great concert. So I wish yeah. you luck with that. Thank um, you. Um, by the way, um, uh-huh. I'm also going to send you some photographs and videos of the event tomorrow. So keep Excellent. on that. I will. And I'll be sending you more videos, more videos on my favorite types of music via Messenger. So okay. hopefully we'll continue to keep in touch. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Mitch, great talking to you. Great Thank time. you for the conversation. Thank you for everything. I hope that Stephanie is watching, but thank you, Stephanie, Hi, for Stephanie. Um, thank you, Stephanie, for doing it, for getting us together for the interview. Hopefully, we'll join. Hopefully, you'll get the chance to join us yeah. very soon. And Mitch, um, take good care of yourself. Stay safe. Stay tall on the way. Be careful. Keep in touch. Sweet dreams. Yep. Autistic and neurodivergent power on the way. Right. Salutations on whatever you're doing that makes you happy in your spare time. Have a good weekend ahead and. Happy reading books and knowledge all day and every day. Thank you.